You're listening to Shrink the Virus, a weekly podcast that explores the psychology of everyday life during the pandemic, hosted by two psychiatrists, Steve Allen and Rob Seltzer. Shrink the Virus is brought to you by Melbourne independent community media organisation, Triple R. Check out the Shrink the Virus podcast page on the Triple R website and on Facebook. And don't forget, you can financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber at any time. More details at rrr.org.au. Hello, everyone. You are listening to Shrink the Virus with two psychiatrists, myself, Steve Allen, and Rob Seltzer. Um, we are talking at the moment on Sunday morning, the 2nd of May. Sorry, no, no, Saturday, Saturday morning, Saturday morning, the 2nd of May. And we're talking to Dr. David Hipgrave. We're going to introduce him a little bit further when he joins the line in a couple of seconds. But he's coming direct from New York. Let's Ooh. get David on the line. David is a local boy done well. He trained as a paediatrician here in Melbourne before embarking on a career in international child's health. His work took him to various parts of Africa and Asia before settling in New York, working for UNICEF. UNICEF, I should say. G'day, Dave. How are you, man? Hi, Steve. Good to speak to you. And uh, hello, everybody. G'day, Dave. Hi, Rob. Hey, we've automatically started calling you Dave because we've known you for about 30 years. That's Whereas quite okay. You're formally a David. You know, when, David. You work, when you work in New York and you're in the big smoke and, you know, your career's going like yours is, <laughs> it's really Sir David. <laughs> <laughs> is that right? No, there's plenty of Daves in the United States. I, I, I would like to think I'm as uh, smart and funny as Dave Chappelle. But, uh, oh, I, I love think... Dave Chappelle. Yeah. Um, let's start the ball rolling with talking about New York. You know, you're based in New York. You've been living there, oh, must be about 10 years from my memory. It might be less. Um, <laughs> what's less. it like there at the moment? Can you paint a picture of life in New York right now? Well, it's been very interesting, um, kind of terrifying and enjoyable at the same time. Um, I would say it's just there are signs of life starting to return now, not only um, because um, most of the leaves are starting to reappear on the trees uh, around the, the streets, um, the, the, all the blossoms have, or most of the blossoms have disappeared, but also because the traffic is starting to reappear. There's still very few people out and about on the footpaths, but those who are out are now definitely wearing face masks. Um, from the time of the shutdown and uh, within the UN, we've been left, we've been locked out basically since the probably the third or fourth week of March. I can't remember the actual date, but it was definitely towards the end of March. I think this is our sixth or seventh week from, of working from home. And for most of April, it was just a very quiet city. Um, uh, it was pretty cold and uh, it was springtime so um, not a great time to be out and about anyway although, apart from the trees in blossom but uh, it was just a very quiet city. Um, Dave whereabouts are you? Are you in Manhattan or in Brooklyn? Or yeah I live, in, I, I live in Manhattan just off Union Square so just off Fifth Avenue in kind of the middle of Manhattan or maybe in the southern third of Manhattan but um, yeah right in the middle of the of the city. Um, and most days I'm out, I go out for exercise for an hour and a half or two hours in the evening um, around sunset. And it's been fantastic for a bike rider around New York. I use the city bikes. Mm. Unfortunately, you don't have them in Melbourne anymore. But um, uh, so, yeah, I've been exploring and riding all over the city for a couple of hours and taking lots of photos. Do you live in a loft? 
Can I can I ask? Because I'm just I'm just getting a view of your, of your bedroom. It looks you pretty cool. Would call my place a loft. I have a one bedroom place on the top floor of a south facing apartment on West Sixteenth, which um, gets a bit of sun in summer and has a, a pitched roof. So yeah, I think it's probably a loft. <laughs> I'm blushing as I say that, but yeah. <laughs> And um, like, I'm wondering about the impact of COVID. Like, do you know people in New York who've got COVID? How's the actual illness impacted you and your friends? So, yeah, there have been, I believe, I think 15 <clears throat> people within UNICEF headquarters who've um, been diagnosed with COVID. Um, I don't think anybody has been hospitalised that, that works within UNICEF headquarters. But um, I know a number of people whose family members have been hospitalised. I have a, a very close friend here whose father died and mm. the father's girlfriend died and, um, and a, another person whose um, aunt was in ICU for a while. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a serious thing and I think everybody know somebody who's been affected um they've been we've been getting reports out of new york um at the physician fatigue i mean there are these quite moving images of uh doctors and nurses and healthcare workers and the exhaustion is written all over their face is i mean can you tell us what that's like uh, for you, being a doctor, seeing that in your own city? So for me as a doctor, there's an, a, a strong feeling of guilt. I'm not licensed to practice in the United States and I um, also have a full-time job that I'm still doing. I'm actually very busy with my regular work. Mm. Um, but I have cycled past uh, a couple of the hospitals at 7pm when everybody um, claps and um, bangs their pots and pans in salute to the healthcare, health workers around New York City. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, so I've cycled past a couple of hospitals and seen people when they're out of the hospitals. And you can see that there's, there's both a lot of camaraderie, but there's also a lot of uh, feeling of having been at the centre of something yeah. historically and globally really significant. And I'm sure it's the same in Northern Italy and in Paris and Sp and Madrid and other places where there've been huge numbers of cases, where there've been losses among the healthcare workers and where, you know, as I said, nearly everybody has had a personal or uh, personal experience of, of the impact of the disease um, or in the case of the health workers has worked with um, people who've been obviously very severely affected and, and in many cases have lost their lives. You've, you've probably heard, I mean, these stories of the number, the increased numbers of deaths um, relative to normal times in New York. Uh, there was a horrendous story this week of a couple of U-Haul trucks mm. um, outside a funeral parlour that were found uh, with 50 bodies. <laughs> the, the, the alert was drawn to this. They were parked outside a funeral parlour and uh, somebody noticed a foul-smelling mm. stench um, from some liquid that was dripping from the back of one of the trucks, and they discovered that uh, the, the refrigeration in the uh, funeral parlour had failed and these bodies had been left mm. out. So, um, yeah, these kind of stories you know, of the sort of um, the bad things that have been happening, and there's also been those stories of bodies buried in pits mm. in the Bronx. But, uh, you know, there's also been a lot of um, acceptance of the um, calamity that has uh, struck this city. Uh, there's been a lot of rallying around the, the governor of New York State, um, who's, who does um, morning briefings every, every morning at 11 and has um, presented a stark contrast to the national leadership here <laughs> mm. um, in his sort of maturity and his honesty and his um, um, 
is acceding to the science of what's going on. Um, so uh, I think the city, whilst, you know, it's suffered badly, it, it uh, has also some reason to feel like it's rallied around um, the need to act and um, people really have stayed home. I mean, yes, people go out to exercise, but it's it's maturely as people are staying away from each other. They're, they're wearing masks. Um, and uh, I think it's been a, a, a really strong and, and a good response. I mean, obviously the numbers have been huge, um, but I think a lot of those numbers probably stemmed from um, the slow response at the, at the beginning of the outbreak in the entire country. So, um, Dave, with the restrictions over there, so our restrictions in Melbourne, as you probably know, throughout Australia are compulsory. You get fined if you break them. Are the restrictions in New York as strong? Do people have to stay in home, only go out for emergencies to buy food to get help? And do you get fined if you break the restrictions? No, it's very different in that regard. And, and I have my own perspectives about whether people should be fined for going out and in Australia, obviously, uh, in the first few weeks of the recommended changes in behaviour down there, people were not um, adhering to what was recommended, so they felt like they had to be heavy-handed about it, and that's obviously been very effective. You, you know, you're nearly down to almost zero transmission. I think Canberra and Tasmania are down to zero. Canberra, anyway. Um, or maybe Northern Territory as well. But here, no, people were not being fined. There's police everywhere. but And there have been a few cases of... Um, of parties being broken up, you know, rare cases, so rare that they're reported in the newspapers. But, um, you know, people genuinely have been staying at home um, and certainly offices are, are virtually all closed. Most businesses, I mean, all businesses are closed. I think the Home Depot is open. I've been there once. You have to queue to get in. Um, some restaurants are open, but mainly for takeout. There's no eating, there's no eating in, in a restaurant. Um, so it's going to have a horrendous impact on. This is a a city where there are no malls, and there's, um, uh, you know, where potentially every home. It's a bit like Hanoi in the old days. I worked there for a few years, where every building is a shop, um, and most of those shops are closed now. And most of those sh um, people working in those shops or the the proprietors have, have to pay big rent um, to have a business in New York City. So the, the impact on those um, businesses, small businesses, is going to be you know really, as I said, calamitous. Um you mentioned before that there's been a disparity between some state responses and the federal response to the pandemic. Can you just give us a bit of detail of what that's like on the ground and sort of having a, a difference between what's done nationally or federally or what isn't done and what's done locally? I mean, how does that play out in practical terms? Well, I haven't been to any of the other states, um, but uh, I was in New Orleans at the beginning of March and um, uh, there was a, a good story about this in the New York Times a few weeks ago about how um, in the first few weeks of the, the national outbreak, you know, the people there were kind of brushing it off and thought that nothing much was going to happen. But it emerged that um, Mardi Gras at the end of, at the end of April um, was a, like a super spreading event for, for COVID-19. Um, and um, New Orleans has had one of the highest rates of infection in the entire country. And I think they've taken it on board and the city has responded. But other cities where, and other, other states where there have been fewer cases and particularly in the, um, in the mountain states in the wheat belt uh, in the north centre like Idaho, Wyoming and Montana and some of the other southern states, particularly the red belt states, they've kind of um, hewn to the, um, the 
line that was um, drawn early in the epidemic by the national leadership that um, it was going to blow over and that um, uh, we didn't need to be too serious about it. Um, I think that national leadership is now being a little bit more cautious about what they they say, but some state governors, and, and, and America is discovering um, what level of power lies at national level and what level is um, at state level. So at, at state level, there are now, I think, about a dozen states which have started to wind down um, the, the restrictions. Um, uh, I think Georgia and Michigan are two of the states mm. which are, have most wound down the restrictions. And let's see what happens. They, they probably haven't had that many cases but mm. uh, in, 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 the, in the course of the pandemic. But as we all know, this virus is, hasn't disappeared. Um, so almost certainly they're going to um, find that uh, as they relax, then uh, cases will start to increase and uh, hopefully the population behaves um, in a more mature and sensible way than um, the political leadership. And Dave, on a personal level, I'm wondering how you're going. Like, do you feel at all scared when you go out or is the isolation starting to build up and stress you a bit? It must be especially hard being away from, uh, you know, essentially your home, although in Melbourne, although I assume you're used to it after decades. But how are you feeling personally about the whole thing? Um so from a personal perspective, you know, I, I have a nice little place. I like being here. It's in a great neighbourhood. Obviously, the neighbourhood's shut down. So it's only great from being nice to look at. It's a bit of a where I live, near where I live is a bit like a Hollywood set from the sort of golden age era of New York City. But, um, um, you know, it's, it is I, – I, I mentioned that I go out for an hour and a half or two hours each day. It's because I can't be cooped up in the place all day, in this place all day, and also because I feel like I need to get some exercise. Otherwise, I'll turn into a balloon. Um, uh, I think the other thing that's um, affected me is being uh, – like a lot of people work from home here one or two days a week. I've been somebody who goes into the office every day because um, it's part of – the social contact that I have with my work colleagues and one of the best things about working in the headquarters location is that you have really clever and interesting people to talk to and to interact with. So a lot of that is um, on a regular basis has disappeared, but we are having just meeting after meeting uh, using this uh, format, of course, um, uh, every day. Um, but it's not the same as being in, in daily contact with people. And I, I, the other thing that I would say is, um, you know, our role in headquarters uh, in, a, in an emergency like this is much, much more removed from um, our normal role when we have a bit more contact with country officers and a bit more contact um, with our work in the field. Whereas at the moment, the, the country officers are all so busy and so um, uh, pressured to both respond and to also make the most of the opportunity that um, all the funding that's being made available from uh, various big donors like the World Bank and the, uh, some of the multilaterals like um, the, Glo the Global Fund and Gavi and um, the European Union, etc. So, all, you know, many of those agencies have stepped up and uh, provided a lot of opportunity. Dave, speaking of yep. funding, um, the World Health Organization, which is part of the UN, has come under, yep. come under criticism from multiple countries, most, notice, most notable the USA, withdrawing funding. Um, what's your take on that? So, I mean, obviously, I'm a member of, I work for another UN agency. We strongly support WHO. We work very closely with them. And I think in the last few years, UNICEF, from, from my perspective, UNICEF's relationship with WHO has gone from strength to strength. Um, there, 
the, the organization is basically full of super committed, super hardworking and super um, uh, in, intelligent and uh, well-qualified people to work on, of the, on all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, the end... Um, uh, our relationship in, in my area of work, which is health systems and primary health care, and we have a very close working relationship with a, a group of people at WHO. We had a, f- a fabulous um, meeting to relaunch sort of primary, uh, the, a global focus on primary health care in Kazakhstan, where 40 years ago the Alma Arta Declaration was laid down in 1978. So at this meeting was in 2018. So, you know, I'm a strong fan of WHO. Um, that said, you know, there are, there's been a lot of um, discussion about the sort of how the global agencies are funded and how they work with countries and how they represent each other and whether they're under political influence. And some of that, uh, some of that criticism and some of that perspective of need for change, I think, is, is um, well taken. And let's see what happens after this, um, this outbreak. I think Probably they, personally, I think they were probably a bit slow to declare the um, pandemic of international concern. But on the other hand, I'm not sure that it would have changed very much um, uh, their relationship with China. I mean, every country has a relationship and every big organisation has a relationship with China. It's a fifth of the world's population and um, China is not even in the top 10 donors for WHO or funders of WHO. Um, Mm. But... um, on the other hand, I think uh, there are there, there may be other sources of influence on, on WHO from China, but um, I think probably in retrospect they wish they'd done a few things differently. But on the other hand, I certainly don't think uh, the US response, um, which as we've all seen, the sort of scapegoating that's going on, um, I don't think that's uh, at all warranted. What about then um, the calls for an international investigation into the origin of the um, of the pandemic and COVID? And um, is there anything wrong with doing an international investigation? What's the uh, are there arguments uh, against it? I think I, I don't necessarily agree with some things that Scott Morrison says, but I think he summed it up pretty well. Why wouldn't you want to know exactly what happened and 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 what the origins of this were and what things could have been done could have been done better and um, whether you know we should have acted earlier and you know there's during the Ebola crisis in 2014 to 2016 in West Africa there was a lot of angst about whether we should shut down um, international travel from the region and I think that the reluctance to do that at that time um, because of the impact on those countries and the impact on uh, you know what was a fairly isolated outbreak when you compare it with what we have now um, uh, so there was a reluctance to do that because of the impact of such a global shutdown on travel on the global economy. Well, so that hangover from the reluctance to shut down travel in those days may have had an impact on um, the experience we've just had and maybe we would have done better to, um, to reduce um, international travel or been a bit more strict about it or done the kind of China screening that we've all seen and, and the uh, Taiwan uh, South Korea and uh, Singapore's type screening that um, and and um, cautious uh, public health type behaviour that those countries undertook, and maybe we should have done that more widely earlier on. Dave, um, let's shift focus a bit to to your work with UNICEF because um, yeah. that's the organisation you work for. It, it's an amazing organisation um, which addresses sort of all aspects of children's lives, including health. How is COVID impacting the work that UNICEF does? 
Well, it's had a huge impact. Um, everything from health to child protection to education, nutrition, HIV, they're all, all those programs have been affected, uh, whether it's um, obviously the health program through the impact on routine health care, um, the shutdown of the immunisation program, the impact on, on polio eradication, um, the risk of uh, a recrudescence of measles cases and malaria cases, um, the possibility that we'll see a reversal in the in the falls in child mortality and, and, and infant and newborn mortality because people are taking up health care much less um, or much more reluctantly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have friends who are working back there who say that they've seen people presenting much later in the course of their evolving infarct or their evolving, you know, gallbladder obstruction than they would have mm. otherwise because they're afraid mm. to turn up to services and mm. most likely some services, health service in, in the developing world or low-income countries are being um, affected by the, the outbreak, whether through effects on health workers or supply chains or, um, or because, as I said, the communities uh, are less uh, likely to pitch up. Mm. Similarly, um, education, many schools have been closed down, markets have been closed down, people's livelihoods affected, people's ability mm. to earn, many people in the, in low-income countries live from day to day um, they their, their income depends on being able to go out of the house and and conduct uh, business or you know buy and sell stuff so um, it's had a huge impact on all our all aspects of our work um, I would say everybody who's in um, the UN and in the development sector is would have the same perspective mm. um, uh, there's been a great response from many donors um, and um, many domestic governments have also stepped up uh, and even some interesting things like the Malawi High Court refused to allow the country to go into lockdown because of, um, because a citizens group uh, took the government to court um, and the government found in, in favour of the population to be able to maintain um, the ability to con conduct uh, economic activity. Um, but yeah, we're, we've been hugely affected, not, not just because we're working from home, but also because nearly all of our programs have either changed or have had to stop. It's hmm. so scary. Um, tell me, where does this, I mean, I hate to sort of make it parochial, but I'm interested to hear, where does Australia fit as a world player in child health? What are we doing and do we do enough? Yeah, you know, things have changed a lot in the last probably five years or so. When, when uh, during the, the Rudd-Gillard years, Australia was really for a while at the, at the high table. You know, we were among the top 10 donors to global development. Um, we had AusAid as a major player um, and uh, you know, we, we were really um, uh, kicking goals with our global development program. Um, with the, the change in government uh, when Tony Abbott was elected, um, the uh, AusAid was absorbed into um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Uh, their um, technical capacity was um, very rapidly, uh, I think I can only say was decimated. It may have improved now. Um, uh, and uh, the Australian dollar obviously has taken a big hit with the collapse of the, um, the resources boom. So um, we're basically a lot smaller a player and, and we're rarely mentioned when um, um, don donations to crises like this or even regular uh, development assistance um, is discussed. Um, we're still a big player in the Asia-Pacific. Um, so I think, you know, Australia is still a significant contributor to countries like PNG and Indonesia and uh, to a lesser extent Cambodia and Myanmar and the Pacific. Um, 
but it's it's changed a lot in the last few years, that's for sure. Dave, what are your long-term plans? Are, are you going to come back to Melbourne? Are you going to stay uh, in um, New York? Well, no, I'm on rotation here, so most likely I'll have to leave here even later this year. Huh. Um, uh, Bummer. In fact, in fact my, next, uh, my next position is slated to be in Baghdad um, for a couple of years, but uh, whether that... I, I'm, at this stage, that's what I'm expecting to do in the third quarter of this year. Yeah. Um, after that, that'll that'll be for a couple of years, and after that, I'll I'll make a decision. I I'm I'll be actually at retirement age then, so <laughs> that's looking pretty appealing, I have to say. Hey, Dave, um, it's been fantastic. Rob, did you have another question? Yeah, can I, I've got two quick questions. Two quick hey, questions. No Sorry. Um, well, the first question, Dave, is I'm getting the vibe just sort of seeing your picture on the Zoom um, photo, that it's just a vibe mm-hmm. that the United Nations, or who in particular, is looking for two seasoned psychiatrists to come work for them in New York. Can you, can you confirm that? <laughs> in New York, and can we fit into your loft? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'd be pretty crowded in my loft with you two guys here. Oh, um, don't take but, up much uh, space. feel welcome. <laughs> Yeah, you can fit. You can live out of your suitcase. Yeah, I can do that. Um, yeah, no WHO has an office here. I mean, well, WHO has an office here, but there's other other organisations that could probably use your skills. So, okay, could you put in a word for us? Come, out, come over and yeah, come over and try your luck. Now, Steve. Hey, David has. Yeah, sorry, Rob. Were you going to ask the question we were going to ask every one of our guests? Oh, sorry, I forgot your every one of our guest question. That's your question. You ask. Okay. Well, it's our our final question, so I'll round off the interview. Dave, what's one thing you're doing better now in COVID times as compared to six months ago? Um, Trying a lot of new recipes, uh, cooking. Okay. Um, And uh, I've started running again, which I wasn't doing because I've got bad feet, but uh, I have to do some exercise. I've actually given that a try and... uh, um, my tarsal tunnel syndrome has coped reasonably well so far. Yeah, good news. <laughs> yeah. So, David, it's great to see you uh, over Zoom and uh, it's great to talk to you. It's fantastic to hear this perspective of, you know, life in one of the epicentres and also, uh, you know, the international perspective. Um, you're one of our heroes, you know, having trained roughly at the same time as us and then had this international <laughs> career in so many different countries. So uh, thanks very much for joining us on Shrink the Virus to uh, have a chat. In you, for you this evening, for us this morning. Well, Thanks, Steve, I, regu- I regularly listen to you on Tuesday night and I regularly listen on Sunday morning to both of you. So you guys are heroes of mine as well. <laughs> <laughs> We're all heroes of each other. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Cheers and thanks very much. Okay, my pleasure. So that was uh, Shrink the Virus for Saturday the 2nd of May. I've got the right day now. Um, you've been listening to me, Rob Seltzer, and Steve Ellum, and we've been talking with... Dr. David Hipgrave. Uh, he's with uh, UNICEF in the <laughs> in the United Nations in New York, soon to be moving to Baghdad, he tells us. We've got to say thank you to a whole bunch of people for putting this podcast together, including 
Beck, Mia, Grace, Elizabeth and Michael at Triple R. And also, can I remind everyone that uh, we've got some social media. We've got Facebook called Shrink the Virus. We've got Instagram called Shrink the Virus, I think, underscore Triple R. We've got an email, shrinkthevirus at gmail.com. We love your feedback. We love your comments. If you've got any questions or things you want us to read out on air, let us know. And, of course, don't forget to tune into 3RRR, who produces this podcast, especially our show, every Sunday at 10 a.m. called Radiotherapy. Thanks, everyone, and bye-bye. Bye. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.